Today's reading from Roman, Romans 7, uh, verse 1 to 6. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might be a fruit of God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written codes. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Well, it was almost 25 years ago exactly that I can remember uh, going into my very last VCE exam, and that was uh, Texts and Traditions, that's the name of the subject, which was a Bible study Subject. You could actually get a you know a whole subject just studying the Bible, which was cool. Book of Luke, we did, and um, I can remember there was about twelve of us in the class, and um, a mixture of Christians and non-Christians, atheists and agnostics and Christians. But the atheist kind of ringleader, kind of clown of the class, thought it was a cool idea to have a pray. So we all got on our knees before the exam, and they were sort of having an, a wink, but also a bet both ways, because they were hoping maybe if there is a God, they might get something in there. And all the Christians um, were um, taking it seriously. And then we did the exam, and then I can just remember at the end of the exam, I, you know, the supervisor said, um, pens down, and we stood up and walked out, and that was it. No more school. No more classrooms, no more books, no more teachers, dirty looks. That was it. And it was the most amazing experience. You know, those of you who have finished Year 12 know what that feels like. 13 years prepped to Year 12, and you walk out the door and you don't have to do it again. It is the best feeling of freedom ever. And I'm sure um, all of us have had different times in our lives when we've experienced a sense of the burden lifting and a sense of freedom, a sense of just exhilaration of this new thing, this new chapter in your life that you're you're going into. Perhaps it's when you first got your driver's license and you just suddenly felt you could just drive around you didn't have to ask for lifts from your mum and dad or from your friends anymore. If you think about it, the whole of the Western world is in an unprecedented pursuit of freedom. It's the catch cry of the West. It's, and in fact, in history, it's a very recent and unusual idea. If you were to compress all of civilization, history of civilization into one hour, then it's the last minute that uh, 
democracy and freedom becomes a pursuit for the world. What you and I experience as normal in terms of the things that we believe are important about freedom, it's a very recent idea. The English writer, Christian writer, who lives actually in America, his name's Oz Guinness, has spent the last 50 years observing American culture, and he wrote a book called A Free People's Suicide, Sustainable Freedom and the American Future. And in it, he makes a really insightful observation about freedom. He says, at the heart of the pursuit of freedom is a paradox. And that paradox is that the greatest threat to freedom is freedom. This is why, and I'm quoting Oz Guinness here, he says, freedom requires order and therefore restraint. Yet the only restraint that does not contradict freedom is self-restraint, which is the very thing that freedom undermines when it flourishes. Thus the heart of the problem of freedom is the problem of the heart because free societies are characterised by restlessness at their core. So if you look at America, the land of the free, the Statue of Liberty holding her flame, um, they are in self-destruct mode at the moment because they've got competing visions of freedom. On the left and the right, competing visions of freedom. On the right, you have the idea of the free, free market and freedom from government control. And on the left, you have freedom of self-expression and identity. Uh, and these radical different notions of freedom clash. So people um, are just living tribally now in America. And what was once held up as the great experiment of freedom, America, is now potentially on its way out. Well, we've been reading through the book of Romans, and uh, one of the things that Romans claims is that freedom is only possible um, through Jesus. True freedom is only possible through Jesus. It's not possible through any other kind of vision of utopia that's held out to you by any of your um, political allegiances. Romans is specific about this. He's specific about what freedom you have, what you're free from and what you're free to. Our passage this morning says that Christians live in the, the new way of the Spirit, and there's a freedom in that. So we're going to look at that and see what we're free from and what we're free to. So let's look at the passage, and I'll just go through each, each of the verses, because only a short passage. Verse 7. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Now, you pro- this, this, this sentence, the first sentence, probably should start with the word or, because um, it's in the sentence there, but some of the translations don't include it. And this is because Paul's kind of saying like, an argument. He's assuming people kind of will agree with him. After chapter 6, he says, to join chapter 7, let me try this illustration for you. I, I think we'll all agree with this idea. Um, and they'll agree with this because the readers of the letter are, are familiar with concept of Jewish law and, and other kinds of law. And they know that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. This is a kind of concept that they'll all agree with in verse 1. And um, by law here, we probably assume that he's meaning the law of Moses, the, 
the, the Ten Commandments and the laws that are in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. His audience, though, is predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. But many of them, before their conversion, were people who were God-fearers. They, they, they associated with the Jews and they understood. They went to worship at synagogue and, and they had a very good familiarity with the um, Torah. And there also probably were some Jews in the converted Jews in the congregation too. So the people he is addressing have a good understanding of this concept of the law. And he goes on to explain his point with an illustration from marriage, verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive... She's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So this is an example. It's kind of a little bit of a, a funny one. You have to kind of get your head around it a little bit because he's saying the wife is free from the obligations of the marriage if the husband dies. Um, and as we apply that back into into the law, as, as Paul will do. We just have to get ahead around what Paul's doing. But he's basically saying if a death occurs in a marriage covenant, then that marriage covenant is over. But if, if the woman is to have sex with a, another man while she's, well, the man's still alive, her husband's still alive, she's an adulterer. So this is a kind of freedom he's talking about, a freedom from the covenant, covenant that is possible. Now, I'm sure that for some women... The death of their husband does make them feel freed. She doesn't have the grumpy old bloke complaining all the time that the chores aren't done properly or whatever misogynistic claims he's making in the house and he drops dead and then she's like, oh, that's sad. Woohoo! The merry widow. So what's Paul getting at? Paul's point is that death releases and frees a person from the ab- obligation of the law. That's what he's it goes on to explain in verse 4. Look at verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So just like the marriage example, death removes a person from the jurisdiction of the law, the death of Jesus. And he's already made this point a few times in Romans makes it back in chapter 6, verse 6 to 8, which, is, which says that if we have died with Christ, we have died with respect to sin, and now he's saying we've died re- with respect to the law. Like the woman in the illustration you have, through a death, being severed from your bondage to the law and being enabled to be joined to Jesus, the new law of love, which the passage calls the way of the Spirit. And the the purpose of of Jesus' death is twofold here. Firstly, that you'd be joined to him, in union with him, and that you'd rise with him. And then the second thing is that you'd bear fruit for God, which is what the passage says. So there's actually a mixed metaphor going on here of marriage and bearing fruit. But then we have that mixed metaphor all the time because you talk about people getting married and then bearing the fruit of children. So I guess it works. What being joined to the risen Christ means is that you'll be 
ethically transformed and you'll experience a new spiritual life. You've moved from the tyranny of death under sin and law to the glory of life in the reign and the realm of Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain, verse 5, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. That's the old life. And then he contrasts it with the new life. Verse 6, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the contrast again, the old life being in the clutch of sin and death in the law, the new life set free from the old life and in the new way of the spirit. And actually what verse 5 summarises, the old way, it goes on to expand on. So next week we'll have an expanded version of verse 5 um, in the rest of chapter 7. And verse 6 anticipates what he talks about in the first, in first 17 verses of chapter 8. And Paul does this over and over again in Romans. He'll say it once and then he'll say it in an extended form. Then he'll say it once and he'll say it in an extended form because he's being a good lawyer in that respect, arguing his case very carefully and covering all the potential opposition arguments before they come. Just to keep going with the contrast, the old life under the law, the old life satisfy which satisfied the immoral desires the old life in the model of adam under the power of sin that bore poisonous fruit that led to death in fact he says that the law was an enabler of sin the law is like a greenhouse for sin the law promotes sin um and how does this work well um a very famous example of how this works comes from Augustine, who um, wrote in his book, The Confessions, um, he was in a gang when he was a teenager called The Destructors. You wouldn't think of St. Augustine being in a gang called The Destructors. Doesn't it sound? sounds like New York or something. But um, he tells this story that one day um, they were playing sport in the neighbourhood in the afternoon, and then one of them spotted in Augustine's next-door neighbour's house um, a pear or, or, orchard, and there was a tree with a particularly ripe bunch of pears on it and um, they didn't actually feel like pears they didn't really want the pears but um, they wanted to steal them um, because they were the destructors so they jumped the fence into the neighbor's backyard and went to the base of the tree and shook down the pears and this is what augustine wrote in his um, book we carried off a huge load of pears not to eat ourselves but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God. Such was my heart which thou didst pity, even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to thee what it was seeking there, when I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. And then when he was in his mid-40s, he reflected back on it, and and he said that, He was struck by the fact that he didn't even want the pears, but the fact that he wasn't allowed to meant that he did want them. And this kind of, the natural law that God has given, the law of the the kind of instinct of of what's good and and bad that that all human beings have, um, that in itself was enough to push him to want to um, desire those pears. If I say to you, you can't have something, you will want it even more. 
because our hearts are corrupt. And you know this if you're looking after children. Children are the, the most obvious example of this. You say you cannot watch the television. They'll find a way to turn it on. Augustine continues, It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error, not that for which I erred, but the error itself, a depraved soul falling away from security in thee to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed but shame itself. So why do people have affairs? They know it's going to be so destructive for their lives, but it's the taboo that draws them in. It's the, it's the knowledge that it's the wrong thing that actually pulls them in. Why do people cheat on their finances? Half the time the people who cheat on their finances aren't even in financial trouble. They don't need the money. They do it because the knowledge of getting away with it is exciting. What we're talking about here is the old life, the old life that we've been freed from if you are a follower of Jesus. The old life where the law can't help you but actually acts like a greenhouse to expose your sinful desires and even encourage your sinful desires in a bizarre way. But what following Jesus offers is a new life, which is the free, free life from the old and the new way of the Spirit. And for those people reading this letter and for us today, we need to hear this loud and clear. Trying really hard to keep the law even if you only select certain bits of the law and say, oh, I'm not going to be a murderer, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to commit adultery, trying really hard to do that will not lead you to salvation, will not lead you to freedom, because that law will not be able to kill the pagan that is in you. All it will do is to help you be a better pagan. All you can do is turn to Christ for your salvation. All you can do is turn to Christ for your freedom. Now, you might, might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, there's this new way of the Spirit that Paul's offers in verse 6. What does he mean by that? What does that actually mean? Well, I've got seven things to say about that that are short, okay? So don't think when the minister says you've got seven things, you go, oh, far out, I need to go to the toilet all of a sudden. You know, seven things. Here we go. Let's move. Write them down because you'll forget. First of all, it's the difference between the external and the internal relationship to the law of God. Before the law was written, it was written with ink on a piece of paper or was written on stone, as the, um, the Bible says. But now it's written on the fleshy tablets of our hearts. The old law is outside of us. The new law is inside of us. Listen to this promise from the prophet Jeremiah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Lord, I will put the law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And Ezekiel says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So to be a Christian that's walking in the way of the spirit means that God's standard of holiness is actually inside of us. We read about it on the outside in the Bible. We can read about it on the outside, but actually there's a big yes that goes on inside of us when we read that. 
Secondly, this new life in the Spirit means that we have an enlightened understanding of God's holiness, of his purpose that it, for everything that is true in the kingdom, an enlightened understanding. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that the Israelites have like a veil over their heart when the law is read, so they can't really understand it. But when you turn to Jesus, the new way of the Spirit, the, the veil is removed. If you're talking to a friend who's not a Christian and they cannot fathom why you are living the way you are living, it's because they have a veil in front of their heart, preventing them from understanding. But how amazing is it when a person has that veil removed and they say yes to Jesus and then they, and they suddenly understand? The veil is removed and the God's floodlight shines on them and they get it. Perhaps you've experienced this yourself. Sometimes this happens gradually over time. So you might have had the experience of coming to church and nothing makes sense at first. And then over time you find yourself singing along with the songs and enjoying yourself, not just because of the music but because of what the words say. You find yourself reading the prayers and acknowledging the prayers and actually agreeing with the prayers. And you find yourself excited after the sermon. This is because the Holy Spirit has removed the veil from your heart and you understand and you're enlightened. This is the way of the Spirit. Thirdly, we're not concerned anymore with the letter of the law, but we're concerned with the spirit of the law. People who live in the way of the Spirit are concerned less with being legalistic and are concerned more with pursuing God's intention. If you want to see what God's intention looks like, read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. For example, Jesus says, You've heard it was said to the the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The intention of the law, the spirit of the law. Verse 27, chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Christians are free from the law so that they can pursue true righteousness in the power of the Spirit. And that means being concerned with the Spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. In fact, God makes it clear that he is concerned less with what you do on the outside and more with what's going on on the inside. He is concerned less with external correctness and more with the, the way the person who's living in the way of the Spirit actually lives. And, and, re, and, and, and what their, their heart is yearning for, what they love. Four, you have a new motive for your life and your righteous living. So your old motive was fear of God. You kept the law because you were afraid that God would thump you if you did the wrong thing or send you to hell. But living in the way of the Spirit means that your life and pursuit of righteousness is motivated by your love for God. It's actually really possible for you to be a good person and, and actually still be a slave to sin. This is what being self-righteous means. Jesus told a story to illustrate this. Remember Luke 18, Jesus says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified by God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So if you live by the Spirit, you're more like the tax collector, who knows your humble place before God, who lives and acts out his love for God and the grace that has shown him. The Christian lives for the glory of God, not for the glory of themselves. Fifthly, if you're living in the Spirit, you have a new joy. Previously, you were living in a spirit of bondage, but you live in a spirit of life in which you cry, Abba, Father. Living under the law is living in despair. Living in the Spirit means hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know that your sins are forgiven. You know that your future sins are forgiven. This is liberation. You're dead to sin, dead to the law, dead to death, and you have got married to the perfect husband. The old burdensome husband, the law, has died, good riddance, six feet under the ground. The new husband, Jesus Christ, has set you free. So you have a new spirit, spirit of liberty, of hope, of thanksgiving, and of praise. Six, you have a new power. In your old life, you had no power. You were left to your own devices. That's why there is none righteous, not even one. But the new people in the Spirit have received new life in Christ. They are born again of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul speaks in similar terms when he talks, talks about um, ministry. He says, um, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So our whole capacity to serve God comes from the power he gives us in the new way of the Holy Spirit. And we have the power to grow as a disciple. Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The way of the Spirit is the way of power. Lastly, you're being transformed into the image of God's Son. Paul writes in his first letter, first chapter of, of Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ, Christ Jesus. Every day as you live in the way of the Spirit, you are changing from glory to glory. You are becoming better and better, more and more like Jesus. So this is what your life will look like more and more over time as you journey towards eternity with Jesus. You will start to resist anxiety for the future. You will obsess less and less about money. You'll have a new relationship to your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You'll stop obsessing over the affairs of this world and you'll have a new focus on neighbour and awareness of community. And one day when you least expect it, you shall be completely changed in the twinkling of an eye, set free, and you'll be made perfect in Jesus. 
What we have seen this morning is true freedom. When we are with Jesus, we have been set free from the law of sin and death, set free from trying to be good, set free from miserably trying to earn God's love. We are set free to live the righteous life in the way of the Spirit, with God's law written on our hearts, with enlightened understanding, concerned with the Spirit of the law, with a new motive of love of God, a new joy, a new power, transformed from glory to glory. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you offer a way for us to be set free from the burden of the law which leads to death. Thank you for the way of the Spirit which can do for us what we can't do for ourselves, what the law cannot do. We pray that we will be people who do live by the Spirit, who know what it is to live in the new way of the Spirit. We pray as we um, continue um, through this series in Romans that we'll be more and more excited about, about this vision of the gospel. Amen.